Okay, we're going to go ahead and uh, get started this morning. Um, a few announcements and just to make things clear for this morning. First of all, if you have not done the little cards, look at these. I won't say who did them, but aren't they adorable for um, the, the teachers? Uh, we're gonna, there's some more empty cards back there, and we'll give you until Sunday if you can find either Jamie or me um, or Heidi. Is it okay if they give them to you on Sunday? Okay. So, yeah, so you have till Sunday to do these. Um, and I want to make sure that one gets back there. And then just so you know, on you've got a packet of uh, four different things this morning. The first one is a regular outline. The second one is your homework. That's due next week, although we won't have time to discuss it. We, this is going to be really helpful for us, so we'll read over them and we'll make sure that we get those back to you. So that's the next two pages. And then there's um, an evaluation of Wellspring. Um, and we made it a lot shorter this year, so hopefully it won't take nearly as much time. So if you could also do that this week, that would be really helpful. It just helps us in planning. Uh, if you can't get it to us next week and you still will promise that you'll do it, then you can give it to us on Sunday or even stick it in the mail to one of us or something. But that, again, that would really be helpful. And then we're actually going to end in a song this morning, and so the words to that song are on the yellow sheet in the back. So hopefully that all makes sense to you. So um, we're going to go ahead and, and get started this morning. We have been reviewing our Wellspring purpose and the disciplines since September 14th of last year. Isn't that amazing? And uh, so you're all very familiar with them, right? I could just call on any one of you and you could come up and go over them, right? So I'm going to do that. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but I, I do pray that as you are becoming more and more familiar with these, that you are also finding that applying these disciplines to your life is becoming second nature to you. And that you and your family and that those you are ministering to are being blessed by the results of it. I, pr I pray that you are seeing that. We look forward to our brunch next week um, where we're going to have time to hear from each other uh, um, about how these disciplines are taking root in our own hearts as well as other things that you've learned in Wellspring and uh, um, I just think that's going to be a really encouraging time. I think sharing these kinds of insights is really encouraging to hear, and also it's giving God the glory for his amazing grace that he has lavished on us. And so we look forward to that time next week of glorifying God together. So we're going to start at the beginning um, with that. We're going to have our brunch time. If you haven't signed up yet, there's a sign-up sheet in the back. And then we'll take our first hour of sharing together about things that we've learned throughout the year. And then Scott's going to come and share with us um, the vision of Grace Bible Church. So that's uh, we're really looking forward to hearing from him as well. So go ahead and turn over your notebooks. I don't know if Scott's going to do this next week or not, so this might be the last time uh, this year. And let's think about our Wellspring purpose together. Purpose is to, is to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the Word of God so that they live out the gospel, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. Now, because we have a tendency to let familiar things lose their impact, I want to look at this a little bit differently this morning. I'd like to look at the very end of the statement 
and then work our way backwards. So first of all, what is the gospel purpose of the church? Do you know that if you look at the top of uh, the bulletin that is handed out to you every single Sunday, right underneath the name Grace Bible Church, that you will see it there. It says to draw in, to build up, and to send out believers. That beautiful cycle takes a person through becoming a believer to growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord and then in turn to spreading the gospel which then draws in other new believers into the body and that cycle just continues on. And how do we effectively live out the gospel? It begins by shepherding our hearts toward Jesus Christ. And how do we shepherd our hearts? Through the word of God. Without that continually bathing of our hearts in the word, we can so easily get distracted, get our eyes off of Jesus and lose our focus and get distracted with so many other things that clamor for our attention and for our affection. And when we get our eyes off of Jesus, what's the first thing we forget? Discipline one, right? We forget that we need to prayerfully shepherd our hearts toward God through the word, in particular, the gospel. So this first discipline says she prayerfully shepherds her heart. That takes a heart of humility, a heart that is dependent on God as we open up his word, longing for him to reveal himself to us and asking for his help to use his word to teach, to reprove, to correct, and to train us in righteousness. When we come with that kind of a heart before God, it helps us to become ready to hear when God convicts us of sin, to acknowledge that sin, to confess it, and then to see that sin in the light of the gospel, the power of God. In our life. And then discipline number two, the home. She ministers to those in her household with her heart for God and for the gospel. When we have prepared our heart and we've received from the Lord, we've fellowshiped with him, we've worshiped him as he's revealed himself in his character to us, it can't help but affect those in our household. We won't be content to just know that we need to minister to those in our household. Instead, we will joyfully minister to them. We'll have an attitude of dependence on the Holy Spirit to help us have a single-minded devotion to Christ out of which will flow a single-minded affection for ministry to those in our household. Continually, we will always be looking for opportunities to minister to them. And then discipline number three, ministry. With a heart for God and the gospel and fulfilling her ministry within her household, she steps into the church to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. And again, remember, we will not be effective in the church and in our sphere of influence if we neglect disciplines one and discipline two. But the opposite is also true. We never know who God is going to bring into our lives that will need to hear words of hope. 
words that could be a soothing balm to someone who's hurting or discouraged or weary. When that happens, what will we have for them? If we've been with the Lord in his word, we will have what they need to hear. As we are able to share scripture with them that we've just read, we need to remember that God's word in our hearts is powerful to bring hope to others. We need to shepherd our hearts toward God so that we can help our own hearts and the hearts of others. To think rightly and to remember his faithfulness regardless of the circumstances that we walk through. It's all about the heart. If you get anything out of Wellspring this year that will affect you for the rest of your life, I hope that you would come away from our weeks together being 100% convinced that you need to be very concerned about your heart. That you would recognize that you cannot neglect the responsibility of the condition of your heart before God but that you would know that you need to be to take responsibility. And that the only way to care for our hearts is through the word of God. Because God has made it clear that he wants his word to come in contact with the human heart. And so that's where we're going to come. We're making full circle, coming all the way back to that this morning. As we look at troubling and comforting truths for our hearts. So let's go ahead and pray. Father, we do thank you for revealing our hearts to us, that you would show us that there are troubling things that are going on in our hearts. And Father, we thank you too that you are so faithful, that you would remind us of the comforting truths that encourage us. Father, we want to bask in those truths this morning. I pray that we would be encouraged, that we would be strengthened, that we'd be lifted up, stabilized, more in love with you, and more thankful for your provision. And Father, though these truths are for our hearts first and foremost, I pray that we also, as we hear, would be more and more convinced of how others that you bring into our lives need to know these truths as well and that we would be faithful to share the gospel with them. Father, we need your help, and so I pray that as we look into your word this morning, that you would help us to understand that you would burn these truths deep into our hearts as we ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so let's go ahead and and pull out your outline, and let's first look at three troubling truths for my heart. The first one, what keeps the sinner from God is hardness of heart. What keeps the sinner from God is hardness of heart. Go ahead and turn to Ephesians 4, and we're going to look at verses 17 through 20. In Ephesians 4, Paul desires to exhort the believers in Ephesus and in the areas around Ephesus He wants to talk to them about the way they are to live. In verse 1, he talks about how they are to be walking or living in a manner of the calling that God has placed on them. 
And then in verse 17, he tells them again how they are to walk. But this time, by stating it negatively, he's telling them you cannot walk like the Gentiles walk. You can't live like the unsaved live. Well, how do the unsaved live? Let's read it. Let's begin in verse 17. He says, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity and greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. He's making a distinction between how the unsaved lived and how believers live. Okay, notice the phrase in verse 18, because of the hardness of their heart. This phrase comes at the end of a long string of phrases that follow what we just saw in verse 17 about how the Gentiles, how the unsaved walk. And each phrase explains what comes before it. It adds more detail. Verse 17 says, don't walk like they do. So how do they walk? Let's keep reading. It tells us that they walk in the futility of their mind. Now, what does that mean? Well, verse 18 tells us what it means. They, it means that they are darkened in their understanding. They have a reasoning process that is flooded with spiritual darkness. And what does that mean? Let's keep reading. That they're excluded from a life of God. They are alienated from it. And why is that? What is the cause of that alienation? Verse 18 continues, because of the ignorance that is in them. He's saying that believers have a deeply ingrained ignorance. This is not an accidental ignorance, and Scott referred to this a little bit on Sunday. It's not an ignorance that caught them by surprise. They couldn't say, we didn't know any better. No, this is a planned ignorance. It's purposeful and it's willful. It's like the ch a little child who purposefully turns their eyes away from you in order to do whatever it takes to avoid eye contact. Moms, you know what that's like? They, they, maybe when they've disobeyed and you take their little face in, your, in uh, your hands and you say, look at me. And what do they do? Their little eyes wander off. They don't want to look at you because that little one wants to remain ignorant of the disappointment on her mommy's face and the consequences of her sin. They are willfully ignorant of you and what you want to communicate to them. So that's the kind of ignorance that we're talking about here. For the unsaved, it's an ignorance that doesn't want to know God in his ways. He is the mindset, I don't want to see him, I refuse to look at him, I'm not going to gaze upon him and what he wants. And Paul explains this dig-in-your-heels kind of ignorance by looking at the heart. That is why they want to remain willfully ignorant of God 
and his will. Their hearts are hard. Now that word hard means dull, insensible. It cannot be penetrated so to be moved from its current condition. It's petrified, like a piece of petrified wood. Now wood is supposed to be alive, right? But petrified wood literally has become stone. The unbeliever has a stony, insensitive heart. So the ultimate cause of why the unsaved walk the way that they walk, why they walk sinfully, why they live sinfully, all can be traced back to the hardness of their heart. And left to himself apart from Christ, the heart of every single person is this way because of Adam's fall. It's the condition into which we were born. But, and listen to this, it doesn't just affect the unbeliever. God also warns us not to participate in the hardening of our heart. If you look on your outline, you'll see three references to Hebrews. Okay, This is where the writer of Hebrews is quoting the Old Testament. And three times he says, Therefore, do not harden your hearts. Do not harden your heart. Do not harden your hearts. We were born with hard hearts, and we can also participate in the further hardening of our hearts. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, don't do that. Don't further harden your hearts. God warns us not to participate in that hardening. And so as believers, we must not live as those who are unsaved. How could we? If everything that is true that said in the first three chapters of Ephesians, that we've been raised with Christ, We've been united with Christ at the cross, even though we were dead. We've been given a new status, a new position. We've been saved by grace. He's given us new works that, uh, for us to walk in, to live in. If this is the case, how could we possibly um, have the hardness of heart that is the cause of deeply ingrained ignorance? See, that doesn't even make sense. Paul is describing two completely different ways to live. They're naturally, excuse me, they're mutually exclusive. So believers cannot live like those who don't know the Lord. That's Paul's point here in Ephesians 4. So what keeps the sinner from God is hardness of heart. That's a troubling truth. Let's look at the second one. Whenever possible, unbelief will naturally take root in the heart, not belief. Whenever possible, unbelief will naturally take root in the heart, not belief. Let's go to Luke 24. Now we've looked at this passage before, so maybe you'll remember the setting. Jesus has been crucified, and now he's been raised from the dead. Most of his disciples were gathered in Jerusalem, hiding there. But there were two disciples who were walking on the road, heading toward the village of Emmaus. So let's pick up reading in verse 14. 
And they were talking with each other about these things which had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, What are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And so they proceeded to explain to him that they had hoped that Jesus was the Messiah, the Redeemer of Israel, but that he'd been crucified, he'd been put to death. And then, to make things even more confusing, some people were reporting that he was alive again. And so in verse 25, Jesus responds, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. These disciples were slow of heart to believe the scriptures and all that had been revealed about Christ. They didn't believe that it was necessary for Messiah to suffer these things and to enter into glory. And so Jesus showed them from the scriptures. Now remember, these are disciples of Jesus. These are people who followed him personally. And they had hearts that were not quick to trust the word of God. Their hearts were slow to believe Christ-revealing scriptures. Everything that they had just witnessed, a substitute being offered, blood being shed, one who claimed to be the Messiah, was not registering with them for what it truly was. Their hearts were not quick to tie what they witnessed back to what the scriptures revealed about Messiah. If they had believed as they looked back at what had just happened to Jesus, their response would have been, Oh, this is exactly what Jesus said would happen. It's exactly what the prophets foretold. Right? But that's not how they responded, is it? Why not? Because there was a problem with their hearts. They were slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets had spoken. This helps us to see that at every opportunity, unbelief will naturally take root in the heart. And the resurrected Christ labored against that natural inclination to slowness of heart that day. That's encouraging, isn't it? That Jesus helps his disciples overcome slowness of heart. And how does he do that? What did Jesus use? What does it say he used? God's word, the scriptures, absolutely. So even those who walked with Jesus needed that. Now go ahead and turn to Hebrews 3. We're going to look at verses 12 and 13. Here we're going to see that the church, believers today, that means you and I also must labor to root out this natural inclination to not trust the living God. Verse 12 says, Take care, brethren, 
that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Believers are warned against having an evil heart, a heart of unbelief. And why must we be so careful? Because that kind of heart falls away from the living God. Verse 13 says, But rather encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened, he's talking about hardness of heart, by the deceitfulness of sin. So if unbelief will naturally take root in the heart, ladies, what's going to happen if we do nothing with our hearts? If we just kind of go right into cruise control, with our hearts. Is our heart going to be eager to believe God and to trust Him? Absolutely not. The stark reality is that instead our hearts will slide right into unbelief. Now, that doesn't mean unbelief in terms of losing our salvation. It means that we will not be trusting God as we should, as he deserves to be trusted and believe. Because whenever possible, unbelief will naturally take root in our hearts. That's a troubling truth. Let's go to the third one. Self-made religion never moves the heart nearer to God. Self-made religion never moves the heart nearer to God. Let's go to Matthew 15, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 9. Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And then Jesus does something that he often does in the Gospels. He doesn't answer their question, but rather he asks them a question. Look at verse 3. And he answered and said to them, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? See, the Pharisees and the scribes set up their own system of rules and and traditions. And they exalted those traditions over God's commands. And not only that, but they wanted to impose their rules and regulations on everyone else. But Jesus is about to set them straight. He is going to bring up evidence of how they are breaking God's commands for the sake of their own tradition. Look at verse 4. For God said... Honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. That's serious. And then he continues, But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, Whatever I have that would help you has been given to God. He is not to honor his father and or his mother. Whoa, do you see how their traditions violate God's command? Their tradition was set up to cater to their greed. 
See, they set up a way that a grown son could designate some of his resources and kind of set him aside to be designated to God so that he would be exempt from honoring his parents by meeting their needs. In other words, he could say, oh, I've taken that and I've devoted that to God. So I can't give it to you. I can't honor you as my parent in that way. It was really deceptive. And listen to what Jesus says, thinks of that tradition. Look at verse 6. And by this you have invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites! Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips. In other words, devoting your possessions to God sounds very spiritual, very religious, but notice what's in verse 8. But their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching doctrines, the pre- excuse me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. See, it appears that these religious men had hoped that God would see their teaching, their good deeds, and that he would actually be moved to set aside his standards for their traditions. They appear to be very religious, but God's assessment of them is that even though they were religious, their hearts were far from him. Because self-made religion never moves a heart closer, nearer to God. That is a troubling truth. So if these are true, and we know that they are because we've just seen them from the scriptures, then where is our hope? Well, it should be very clear that we must look outside of our own hearts for something to change us at the heart level. And that's why we need to look at the comforting truths for my heart. And that brings us to the gospel. What did God do in the gospel of his son? He overcame our hardness of heart. And he overcame our propensity to always disbelieve God. And he had to work in our hearts in such a way as to show us that all of our righteous deeds, all of our man-made religion, were like filthy garments before him. At the cross and the empty tomb of Jesus, God creates a new inner man who has the capacity to see what the sinner never could see on her own. The sinner's hope is God himself, a God who is motivated by his own heart to save sinners. So let's look at these comforting truths for our heart. Number one, God opens hearts to respond to the gospel. God opens hearts to respond to the gospel. Let's go to Acts 16 and look at verses 13 and 14. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. 
a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. What do you suppose, what do you suppose Paul spoke? The gospel, yes. And ladies, as we read that, that should cause our hearts to rejoice that God does this. Because we saw that our hearts would never walk away from our own self-made religion. That our heart could never overcome its own natural inclination to disbelieve. And that our hearts could never somehow make itself soft. Toward God, the only way that God, that our own hearts would be open to scriptures, to the gospel, is by God's help. He opens the heart. That's a comforting truth. Let's look at the second one. God enlightens dark hearts to know Christ. God enlightens dark hearts to know Christ. Turn to Second Corinthians chapter 4 and we're going to look at verses 4 excuse me 5 and 6 actually let's start up in verse 3 and even if our gospel is veiled it's veiled to those that are perishing in whose case the god of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel in the glory of Christ who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but we preach Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, Light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Now, When did God say light shall shine out of darkness? Yes, Genesis 1. There was no light and God made light in the midst of darkness. And that God who has that kind of illuminating power is the one who has shown in our hearts to give us the light that we need. So if God had to shine his light into our hearts to give us that light, what does that tell us about our hearts? That they were dark, just as we've seen, right? He shines in our hearts to give us the knowledge of the glory of God. That is a powerful, penetrating, overcoming light. And yet that God with that powerful light has shown in our hearts not to consume or to destroy us, but to enlighten that which was willfully dark and lost. There is a spiritual darkness in the human heart that only the Creator God's awe-inspiring, powerful light can overcome. And this light gives us the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, that we might know the glory of Christ. Think about this, ladies. In Genesis, we see that God created light out of darkness. 
And here in 2 Corinthians, he tells us that the power that he used to create that light in Genesis is the same power to overcome our spiritual darkness so that we might know the glory of Christ. That is a comforting truth for our hearts. Let's look at the third one. God cleanses hearts through faith. God cleanses hearts through faith. Let's go back to Acts. This time, let's look at chapter 15. And we're going to start in verse 5. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them. He's referring to the Gentile believers. And to direct them to observe the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. And there had been much, excuse me, after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. That was Cornelius. Verse 8. And God, who knows the heart, testifies to them, to the Gentiles, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us, meaning the Jews who believed, and them cleansing their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. So we see in verse 9 that God cleansed their hearts by faith. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, the heart is filthy and in need of cleansing. And God is the one who cleanses the heart by faith. Okay, he doesn't give us a formula and say if we do this ourselves, we'll cleanse our own hearts. No, it's not something that we can do. So what then so, excuse me, so by what means then will we be cleansed? The way that we are involved is by faith. Faith is the act of looking away from yourself. Faith means I no longer trust me, but I will cast everything that I know about myself on everything that I know about God. It's giving all that you know of yourself to all that you know of God. And that then becomes a never-ending process of growing in faith. Because we are always going to be discovering more and more of who we are, right? As we're in the Word, our sinful hearts are going to be revealed. And as that happens, we had better match that with what we're learning about God we had better be shepherding our hearts to the word of God, to meet God, to know him, because we're going to need to continue to discover how much bigger he is than we are, so that we understand how much we need to cast ourselves upon him. 
For as long as we remain in the condition where we are willing to look to ourselves, which is hardness of heart, by the way, we won't trust God. But we will constantly be falling into disbelief. That kind of heart that we saw when we looked at the troubling truths will be continually falling into disbelief. And that will never be the source. It will never have the source of saving faith. As long as we remain in that kind of condition, we're never going to trust God and we will remain filthy before him at the heart level. So, this requires a work of God. He must open the heart, he must enlighten the heart, and he must cleanse the heart. How? By faith. Faith which he himself must give. Faith which our hard, untrusting, self-reliant hearts could never produce. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace we have been saved through faith, and that faith is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. God gives the faith that we must have in order for him to cleanse us. Because of what he has done, we can declare along with Peter in verse 11 that we believe that we are saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus. Let's rejoice in what he's done. Let's go ahead and look at number four. Christ makes himself at home in our hearts by faith. Christ makes himself at home in hearts by faith. Please turn to Ephesians 3, and we're going to look at a prayer of Paul. Let's start in verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man. Why? Verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ. So Paul prays that God would grant them to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in the inner man. Why? So that Christ would dwell in their hearts through faith. Now, this is not the original indwelling of Christ at conversion. Paul is praying for believers in the church. He's praying for a richer, deeper, practical indwelling of Christ. The verb here that Christ may dwell in verse 17 is actually a word for an intensified dwelling. Okay, it's not a temporary dwelling like the pitching of a tent. But this is a settle down, I'm not going anywhere kind of dwelling. It's where the one dwelling feels completely at home. Colossians 2.9 says, for, and just listen to this verse, For in him, in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Okay, here is the same form of dwelling. 
Now, how at home is God's nature and essence in Jesus? It's a perfect fit, right? It's settled. It's not going anywhere. So in Ephesians 3, Paul is praying that Christ would be as at home in the believer as God's deity is at home in Christ. Now remember, Christ dwells in the believer positionally at conversion. That never changes. But Ephesians 3 raises the question, what kind of residence am I for Jesus Christ? What kind of residence are you for Christ? Are we a dwelling place in which Christ is completely at home in our heart, where he has uncontested rule and reign? See, that is a heart where he would be completely at home. Now, how are we going to be able to do this? That's the big question, right? And Paul gives us the answer right here in his prayer. Verse 16, Paul prayed that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with the power through his spirit in the inner man. To have a heart in which Christ feels completely at home, in which he can settle down both to rule and to reign, requires divine strength from the Spirit in the inner man. Christ's original indwelling of us came by faith through grace, and so also this practical indwelling, this growing reality of Christ being increasingly at home in our hearts, also comes by faith, by ongoing trust, and submission to our Savior. That is a comforting truth. Let's go to number five. God frees the heart from sin to become obedient. Christ, excuse me, God frees the heart from sin to become obedient. Let's turn to Romans 6. We're going to start in verse 17. Paul says, but thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, we just need to stop and think what a great description of everything that we have just seen. Hardness of heart, slowness to believe, self-made religion, all of these are evidences of being a slave of sin. But Paul says, thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. So God frees the heart from sin to become obedient. When God saves the sinner, the first place he begins to work is in the heart, in the inner man. He opens it, he enlightens it, And he also frees the heart because bondage to sin exists in the heart. Our bondage to sin was a condition that we could do nothing about. It took the blood of God's own son, sacrificed on the cross, to be freed 
from the bondage our hearts were in. Slowness to believe was there. Quickness to establish our own self-made religion was there. That was bondage to sin. Now, how did that bondage get broken? By the grace of God, our heart was able to hear another voice. Before, our hearts could only hear one master's voice. It knew the voice of the master of sin. Something had to happen so that our heart could hear another voice, another master, another Lord. We used to be able to only hear sin's voice commanding us, and we did what it said. But by God's grace, he transferred our heart's allegiance. He opens the heart, he enlightens the heart, he cleanses the heart, and we find that now there can be obedience from the heart. And to what do we become obedient? Look at verse 17. He says, You became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. What's he talking about? He's talking about the New Testament gospel teaching. And what is the result of God freeing the heart? Look at verse 18. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves to righteousness. Okay, we can't miss this part. We are not freed for any other purpose but to joyfully offer ourselves as slaves to righteousness. In fact, verse 22 says enslaved to God himself. That is the whole purpose that he frees our hearts from slavery to sin so that we can be his slaves. It's a transfer of ownership because we will always be enslaved to something. Here he's telling us that we have been freed from being enslaved to sin so that we can be enslaved to a new master, to Christ himself. That's what it means to be freed from sin, to become obedient to something new, okay, to Christ. Sin no longer owns us, but we are now obedient to Christ. That is a comforting truth. And that brings us to the last one, number six. Christ establishes our hearts without blame in holiness. Christ establishes hearts without blame in holiness. Let's go to 1 Thessalonians 3, and we're going to look at verses 11 through 13. Okay, this is another prayer of Paul's. He prays, Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you, and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another, For all the people, just as we also do for you, so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all the saints. Paul's prayer here is that the Lord may cause them to increase and abound in love. Why? So that he may establish their hearts strengthen them, stabilize them, 
make them firm so that they won't vacillate, they won't waver. And then he describes what that looks like. First, he states it negatively. He says, without blame. He prays that God will establish us in such a way that our hearts are without fault before him because of Christ. And then he states it positively when he says, in holiness. That is the result of Christ establishing our hearts. Our lives are separated to God, they're consecrated, they are holy. And where is this going to be? Look at what it says. Before our God and Father. It's an audience of one. There will be no blame found in his presence. Only hearts that are established in holiness because of Christ. And then finally, he tells us when this will happen. He says, at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all the saints. In other words, we're still waiting. Yet we know that he is working now to make sure that we are established for that day. So that when he comes, we can be ushered into the presence of God without blame, established in holiness with all the saints before God the Father. So this looks forward to glorification. It's tied to Christ's presence, which will usher the saints into the presence of God the Father. So, from conversion all the way to glorification, the Father and Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit are all powerfully working within us. God is paying very close attention to my heart and to yours. Notice how each of these comforting truths about what God does for the heart are worded. God opens the heart. God cleanses the heart. Christ makes himself at home in the heart. God frees the heart. Christ establishes the heart. The gospel is all about God and what he does to create a new heart, a new inner man, how he makes a new creation. So then, what about us? What do we do? What is to be our response? to God's amazing, personal, and powerful work in our hearts. See, we cannot be neglectful of what God is so focused on from conversion to glory. What he gives intense intention to, we must give intense attention to. Our response to God's work within us and I hope you're thinking the same thing as I am, is to shepherd our hearts to the word of God in order to worship, to love, to fear, to know, and to obey the God of the word. Cammie's going to come up and we're going to close our prayer this morning by worshiping God together. Thank you.
of light and truth. Thank you for bringing sinners to come to you. Sing with me. Heavenly Father, beautiful Son, Spirit of light and truth. Thank you for bringing sinners to come to you. Father, you loved me, sent your son to redeem. Jesus, you washed me, by your blood I am clean. Spirit, you've opened these blinded eyes and brought me to Christ. Heavenly Father, Spirit of light and truth Thank you for bringing sinners to come to you, to you Heavenly Father, beautiful Son Spirit of light and truth Thank you for bringing sinners to come to you Father, you Jesus to keep And Jesus you love me As a shepherd is sheep Spirit you've given me faith in your son And made our hearts one Heavenly Father, beautiful Son Spirit of light and truth Thank you for bringing sinners to come to you. Heavenly Father, beautiful Son, Spirit of light and truth. Thank you for bringing sinners to come to you. Father, you're waiting to hear my request. Loving, open hand is outstretched. Spirit, you're in me. You intercede and help in my need. Heavenly Father, beautiful Son, Spirit of light and truth, thank you for bringing sinners to come to you. Heavenly Father, beautiful Son, Spirit of light and truth, thank you for bringing sinners to come to you. Thank you for bringing sinners. Thank you for bringing sinners to come to you. Thank you. Thank you for bringing sinners to come to you. God, thank you so much, Lord, that you have brought sinners to come to you, God, and that you yourself do it. Lord, we praise you. Lord, God, I pray that it would not be with just our lips, but with our heart. Lord, and to you be the glory. We love you.